We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Welcome to a Taiwan This Week U.S. Election Roundtable Special. Recorded live at the National Taiwan University's GIS Convention Center, the event brought together the collective opinions of Taiwan This Week regular commentator Ross Feingold, Albert Cho, an associate professor of political science at Taichung's Donghai University, and National Taiwan University professor of political science Huang Minhua, as they discuss the ramifications for Taiwan, be it a Donald Trump re-election or a Joe Biden White House for the next four years. We'll jump straight in and we'll jump straight into the messy bit, that being U.S. foreign policy and specifically the thorny issue of U.S.-Taiwan ties. Anyway, we'll begin with a look back at U.S.-Taiwan ties in a modern history. Don't go too far back, Ross, there. As a screaming BBC headline put it, the Taiwan-sized challenge facing the next U.S. president. But we'll take a look back first. And Ross, could you sum up how Republican and Democratic-led White Houses have traditionally viewed relations between Washington and Taipei? Well, since 1979, when the U.S. and the Republic of China discontinued diplomatic relations because the U.S. established relations with the People's Republic of China, uh, we've gone through cycles of Republican and Democrat elections or Democrat, uh, sorry, presidencies, as well as uh, changes in who controls both houses of Congress. Generally, support for Taiwan is considered bipartisan, so whether it's a Democrat or a Republican president. But I think it's fair to say that the record shows that Republican administrations, including the current one under President Trump, have historically been more willing to have a, a higher level of relationship or a more public relationship with the government of Taiwan, uh, whether that's uh, visits by uh, U.S. officials to Taiwan or welcoming Taiwan officials to the United States uh, obviously, weapon sales is a topic of, that gets a lot of discussion um, throughout the Trump presidency and certainly over the past few weeks with the approval of uh, several weapon sales packages. Uh, so although in Congress, it's generally considered bipartisan to support Taiwan, I think we've seen more positive and, and more public actions by the recent Republican presidents, such as Donald Trump, uh, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush uh, versus the recent Democrat presidents uh, being Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Dr. Huang, do you wish to add anything to that? Um, yeah, I want to add one point. Um, I think everybody really, really concerned about who become president would, would, would suit the best for Taiwan, right? Uh, but from my point of view, uh, the most uh, key thing that I, um, uh, I mean, in observing this election is that we want to have very smooth uh, the, the result in terms of who actually get elected. Um, uh, the, the worst case scenario is that when after uh, November 3rd or uh, after, then we can, uh, if they cannot resolve who become the president, then that would be the nightmare for the U.S.-Taiwan relationship as well as, it's not U.S.-Taiwan relationship, it's uh, for Taiwan's um, the international uh, the, the, the status, especially when they uh, 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 coping with the China's um, the, 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 the hostile attitudes. And so my point is that um, if, we, if the election can win smoothly and, and result, get, get a definitely result who become the president, uh, either way, I think would be uh, relatively uh, much better. And um, the, the, the reason is that Trump, although seems to be friendly to Taiwan, his uh, style of foreign policy decision-making is much like a lone wolf. No one really knows Trump 
is going to decide. And a lot of his decisions, especially like in the um, Middle East, that's my uh, expertise, is sometimes really, really unexpected. And all of a sudden, he made a choice, and he did it, and had had the impact. But no one can foresee it, and it. Um, but somehow he's not really seriously engaged in a lot of things. So just like one shot incident and make some impact. But for the long long term perspective, that won't cause structural changes. So which means that even Trump get get elected, and I I don't think that he will make a, a very fundamental changes that to make the close trade relationship have a fundamental, you know, the 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 the, the, the move. And Biden-wise, I think Democrats more like um, establishment-style uh, uh, decision-making process, just like Obama or the former Clinton administration. Mostly much, I would say, ex expected, and a lot of people can know who, uh, what kind of choice they are going to make. So in, they will result in much um, uh, predictable and uh, stable foreign policy uh, making. So. Uh, so my main point is that uh, the worst thing, the worst case scenario is that the result is controversial, and there will be, uh, if they have no uh, definite winners, then there will be a very bad case for Taiwan. Right, Albert. Of course, Ross here said that traditionally Republican presidents have been more friendly to Taiwan than Democrat presidents. Do you do you agree with that, or do you think they've both been pretty friendly over the years? Well, um. I guess I agree with your notion in um, about for about eighty percent. Um, if we look at um, Republicans' records in the past, uh, not to mention um, Donald Trump. I mean, you know, when President Eisenhower was in office, right, and uh, the Taiwan-U.S. alliance was pretty pretty tight, and uh, <clears throat> as time goes by, although the one-China policy kind of occupies the center of the U.S. party stage. But still, um, you know, when we were in the United States, we had a lot of talk to uh, local politicians and even uh, scholars. For those who are sympathy with Republicans, they tend, they tend to support Taiwan in a sense that going against communist China. Okay, So now um, I would like to kind of spend a little time talking about President Donald Trump's uh, performance, even though it's not directly from him, but because of his administration, and Taiwan gained uh, the benefits which we never experienced before. Since Donald Trump took uh, inauguration until now, there have been five laws passed in Congress. Taiwan Defense Act in 2000, uh, 2020, Taipei Act, National Defense Authorization Act, Asia Reassurance Initiative Act of 2018, and the earliest one was the Taiwan Travel Act. And the Taiwan Travel Act actually leads to the high-level visit, as many of you already know, already heard of or watch uh, from TV. So I think Ross is on the right track that um, if we look at the path dependency, we, we look at the the Republican records uh, regarding trading China and trading Taiwan. You know, like, given the fact that, like Professor Huang mentioned, I agree with him too, given the fact that Trump's style is unpredictable, but we don't know much about Biden either, okay? So 
when we you know place the two candidates you know equally on the same page, then we examine the two candidates. We we really have to make our judgment based on prior information. So that's kind of my rationale that I think Donald Trump, if he continues to win the next election, the chance, of course, I'm not, I'm not saying 100%, but chance for him to you know, continue to offer more bonus uh, to Taiwan is much better than the chance if uh, Biden win, wins the next election. That's my first observation. The second observation is that Professor Huang mentioned establishment. You know, Taiwan is not type of country that can benefit from establishment because we are not even recognized as a country internationally. So we've been kind of in a lower hands and China is in the upper hands and put a lot of pressure on us and pretty much bully us. So nobody can tell that there is such a president called Donald Trump coming out of nowhere, maybe not nowhere, but you know, at least for most of Taiwanese people, very few people know who Donald Trump was before uh, 2016. And when he took the office, the establishment was kind of uh, 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 shaked and pretty much destroyed. So he always identified himself as an anti-establishment. And the anti-establishment is, is better for countries like Taiwan because we can uh, see a possible new direction in this type of kind of start off, start over kind of kind of, kind of game, game changer. So that's kind of my, my, my second notion I, I would like to make is that um, establishment is normally good for normal countries like China or like European countries, but not for countries like Taiwan. So Ross, an anti-establishmentarianist in the White House, is that good for Taiwan or bad for Taiwan? How does Joe Biden differ from Mr. Trump, the anti-establishment dude? Well, of course, one of the challenges uh, that an incumbent president has, no matter what political party uh, that they represent um, and what their policy views are or what they've accomplished, but as long as they're the incumbent, uh, and chances are, when they ran, they all ran as the outsider, even someone who's been in politics for a long time. Obviously, Trump truly was a political outsider. Uh, but uh, they, they always have to deal with the fact that after four years as president, you can't say that you're not from the establishment or you're an outsider anymore, as much as, much as you might want to try to do that. And of course, President Trump still tries to do that. But uh, just by the nature of being the president, he has to deal with the establishment. He has to deal with business leaders. He has to fundraise uh, from wealthy donors as well as individuals. Uh, but uh, keeping that in mind, uh, one could say that actually uh, President Trump has taken on a lot of the establishment views if, if one considers the establishment to be people who are supportive of Taiwan. So whether it's uh, members of Congress, as we were talking about earlier, both Democrats and Republicans tend to be very supportive. A lot of the foreign policy establishment in the U.S. Is, has been more 
accommodating, one could say, towards China. But there's also many people who, who for a long time, uh, I'm referring to scholars or people who work in think tanks, retired military people who've said that this relationship is wrong, um, the U.S.-China relationship, and it needs to be adjusted uh, given concerns about Chinese behavior and to be more supportive of Taiwan. That's not an anti-establishment view. Those people are also, broadly speaking, part of the establishment. And some of them went to work for the Trump administration and implemented the policies that we've seen over the past four years. It is fair to say that Joe Biden is an establishment type of person, given the number of uh, years he's been in the Senate and uh, eight years as vice president. When he was a senator, uh, a typical kind of moderate senator, whether Democrat or Republican, uh, supported uh, China's entry into the World Trade Organization, supported Taiwan's entry as well, uh, supported weapon sales to Taiwan over the years. Uh, the Obama administration, as many of the foreign policy decisions Vice President Biden was involved in, again, as we talked about, it, it's a typical Democrat administration. It wasn't necessarily bad for Taiwan, but probably didn't do as much as a Republican administration might have done, uh, raising the profile of the relationship weapon sales. Uh, the, the, the safest assumption to make, Gavin, is that a lot of the policies will be similar to what occurred under eight years of Obama. Uh, so there'll be some weapon sales, but maybe not as frequently or as large as what occurred in the past four years under the Trump administration. There'll probably be some high-level visits, uh, but you know, the Trump administration only sent high-level people in its final year as well. So if Biden gets elected, it might take him three or four years until he sends some high-level officials to visit Taiwan. Uh, on the other hand, if Trump's reelected, uh, he might continue with all of those same activities, or he might go a little slower until the second, third, or fourth year of his administration. Ultimately, there is a lot of unknowns here, whether uh, Trump wins or Biden wins, whether establishment or anti-establishment. So the key point, I think, Gavin, is Taiwan needs to be prepared for all eventualities, no matter who's elected. Cover your back, I believe, the phrase is there. Uh, Dr. Huang, if Donald Trump is re-elected, do you see him continuing with the current Taiwan policy? Or do you think he could cool down a bit there as he deals with China? And if Joe Biden wins, what do you see him doing with Taiwan? Do you see him emulating the Trump administration or going back, as Ross said, to the Obama administration? Okay. Um, again, two observations. I, I think there's a fundamental change Trump brought to the world, which is that fundamentally changed, um, um, I mean, the people around the world think about China, right? Uh, before Trump, I think... Um, in the global community, there is a strong sense that China is uh, is emerging to the global e uh, economy, and not just emerging, is actually becoming the leaders, and and espousing the uh, globalization as well as neoliberalism, playing the game with the U.S. and Western countries and international all kinds of organization, regime, playing all the rules. But when Trump got um, elected, a lot of policies. Uh, somehow uh, infecting people's minds that, oh, oh, China is doing something that continuing uh, challenging in terms of leadership. And that leadership is not actually using very, uh, how should I put it, controversial way. It's in a way that uh, uh, on the surface is abiding uh, by the rule, but uh, deep down, China really ambitious trying to, become, to, to change uh, 
in academic language, the distribution of power in the world. So China wants to become number two, even number one. And they fundamentally change uh, people think about uh, what China is going to bring to the world. All right. So having with that uh, premises, I think when Trump get reelected, he got to face uh, his China policy is really that, uh, I mean, what's the baseline? Right now he's in the um, campaign, and the COVID-19 thing hurts him very much. So he decided to go tough, very tough on China, and, 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 and since there is no bottom line. But when, when he get reelected, he got to cool down, to think really through how he's going to pitch U.S.-China relationship in the next four and even for the next decades. And, well, there are some uh, suspicion whether Trump would think that deep. But, 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 but it, it all comes to question, China eventually need to engage with China. So my, I mean, totally just my speculation, I guess. I think he will cool down a little bit. He will try to become a little bit soft, just like he deal with King uh, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, the, the, the way he's uh, handling conflict, sometimes it will be very, very tough. But all in a sudden, he will turn 360, become uh, 180, sorry, become very kind of uh, softened the tone and make it more smooth and claim that his, um, this is his um, credit to solve the problem. I'm not really sure that, but I think uh, this moment is, the, uh, the, in terms of level, his toughest level that he's, he, he's, he's pitched China. So after that, I, I, I expect he will cool down a little bit, will, will think over uh, much more issues, and make compromise more if he reach certain deals that he can uh, claim victory. But how about Biden? I think Biden, again, uh, the establishment, which means that his long-term experience working in the government. So he has uh, already have a framework in his mind, and at least his circle. So their policy should have certain uh, directions and much more traces that you can be expected back then in Obama or even earlier Clinton administration. So based on that, I think uh, uh, Democrats probably will try to bring China back on the table, uh, play the old game, but with tougher attitudes. So that is, that, that is why I said uh, no matter Trump or, 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 or uh, Biden get elected, I don't think that the, 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 the intents in terms of uh, China relationship, they will kind of become moderate for, for a short period of time, and then we will wait and see what happens. Right, Albert. I think there'll be some moderate dealings with China to begin with, and it could go either haywire or good after that. Um, you know, I, th I think Russ is right that Trump cannot claim himself as anti-establishment anymore because we have learned his foreign policy pattern already, more or less. Okay, and uh, <clears throat> so I would say his predictability is unpredictability, which is kind of you know contradictory, but. Since we know that Donald Trump can uh, kind of play a white card sometimes, but sometimes he kind of, you know, behave just like the third presidential debates. I mean, he behaved a lot. Right? He did not interrupt Biden anymore. So, so that this is kind of his pattern. So this is kind of uh, uh, um, good for Taiwan in the sense that we know that he will play the white cards, but to an extent, to China, against China, I mean against China. So... Whenever he gets what he wants, then he will kind of come back to the normal track and to stay calm a little bit and to wait and see when is the next uh, 
opportune moments that he can, you know, make aggression. I mean, make attack again. So, so you know, that's kind of his pattern. Uh, that to me is still very new. I I I rarely see any uh, former U.S. presidents uh, like this before. Maybe maybe uh, Harding uh, back in the uh, uh, in in the beginning of 20th century or even earlier, like Jackson. All right, but but just in recent history of U.S. politics, I I don't really see you know many politicians like this. I think Trump is very unique in this. His uniqueness kind of rocked the boats type of style is definitely not good for uh, traditional countries like uh, European countries, Germany, France, UK, but it creates or open up a window for countries like underdog like Taiwan. So that, that's kind of my uh, first uh, point. And uh, the second point I would like to make is that I believe both Trump and Biden, they are personally ignorant about Taiwan different from Russ or Gavin or even Tim because you guys have a personal link to Taiwan. You have a love, you have affection for the land, but not Trump, not Biden. So if this is the fact, then it's relatively meaningless for us to speculate what if Trump gets elected? What kind of, elect what kind of policy we will offer to Taiwan? But instead, we should kind of shift our attention to his staff his bureaucrats, and that I think our government has, has done a little bit about that, but not far enough. And by the same token, what if uh, Biden gets elected in six, day, six days? Then we should look into you know, who is surrounding him as the Asia experts. And they are really the one who kind of uh, influence their boss to fall against Taiwan or to for or against China. That's my second point. Biden, if you look into his history in the, in the past, he's kind of very vague about Taiwan. He used to uh, uh, tell Trump that don't jump to the position to go against China too early. Don't treat China as foreign competitor yet. But he also, you know, last year, called President Xi Jinping as a thug Right, and uh, when President Tsai Ing-wen got elected, Biden was one of the very early, uh, very first uh, politicians in the United States in Washington. Congratulates her. Biden also insists on his plan of strategic ambiguity in the cross-strait relations. So he kind of uh, sway back and forth, kind of flip-flop. Even though Donald Trump did this too, but. You know, like what I say, you can see there's a pattern, so-called like path dependency, that he's going in the direction of going against China. The only thing I'm concerned with is that how far this could go. Is it to the point of war? Is it to the point that when President Xi Jinping feel he was so threatened by the U.S. superpower that he cannot handle his own factions? He cannot handle his own people. He cannot keep his own position and privilege. And he might fight against Taiwan as his final bargaining chip. So that's my concern. And even that curse, if we, if we can have a very um, delicate or detailed diplomacy with the United States, for example, 
Taiwan could say that, oh, we are not the first one to start this, and they do this first. So that, for example, uh, I heard there's a news today, uh, Trump administration is thinking about rent F-35, the, the flight, flight uh, jetter to Taiwan. Rent, you know, we are not allowed to buy it, but we can rent from Japan. Because Japan, there are a lot of uh, F-35. You know, the, I mean, the, the, the deal has been made. So maybe that's an, you know, a possibility out there. And like what I say, uh, if you look into the, um, you know, there's a term in the theory of institutionalism in political science we call, in history, there always, there's always a punctuated equilibrium. You know, equilibrium is a balance of the system. But what brings impact or change to the system depends on abrupt change. And to me, Trump is such a person. By saying this, I don't deny any kind of bad records he had in the domestic society, I mean, in the United States. But Tim encouraged me not to talk about too much about American politics because his boss would blame him. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. Okay. Anyway, that's kind of my, my, my third point. That's it. But they talked about strategic ambiguity there, Ross. I mean, strategic ambiguity or strategic clarity in the U.S.-Taiwan issue. Where do we need to go there? Yeah, th this is a topic that's gotten a lot of debate recently, especially with the increase in uh, tensions and uh, Chinese military actions, both in the air or at sea. So the the lack of clarity or the ambiguity has been to, to basically leave it uh, a mystery under what circumstances uh, would the United States come to Taiwan's assistance in the event of a military conflict, whether it was uh, uh, China that uh, attacked unprompted or uh, would the U.S. come to Taiwan's assistance or if it was an action that Taiwan took that arguably prompted the Chinese actions, such as cha changes to the co country's name, the constitution, a formal declaration of a new country, uh, would the U.S. say, oh, Ty that's Taiwan's fault and not, not come to uh, Taiwan's assistance if China attacked? So the U.S. Uh, over the past uh, decades has left this intentionally unknown, intentionally ambiguous. Uh, or, uh, that's why they call it strategic ambiguity. Uh, but as I said, there's been a lot of uh, discussion among experts, uh, observers, scholars, military people, former, uh, retired military people, saying uh, the, it's, the time has come for the United States to clearly set out the circumstances under which it, it would come to Taiwan's assistance. Uh, there's uh, efforts in Congress to pass legislation that would require the United States to provide this kind of a, a, a military aid to Taiwan in the event of a war with China. Uh, unfortunately, Gavin, there, there's no clear answer right now. I, I, there'd be no point asking President Trump or uh, Vice President Biden today about this in the days before the election. In fact, in, there's been several times in the past few months when President Trump was asked in interviews about the possibility of a, a war between China and Taiwan and if the U.S., would assist, and, and he didn't give a direct answer. He, he said, basically, oh, China knows what we'll do. It was kind of like a strategic ambiguity answer. And that's why, uh, again, there's been calls to change it. No matter who gets elected uh, and whoever controls the House and the Senate, th this issue is, is definitely going to be uh, at the top of the to-do list for U.S.-Taiwan US or U.S.-China-Taiwan relations uh, when the new year begins, when the, the president is inaugurated. Again, doesn't matter whether it's Trump or Biden. It's very possible 
that the U.S. will decide to uh, change this policy, whether they'll, uh, whether Congress will pass a law, uh, whether the president will sign it, uh, or the, the president will separately issue a statement, uh, or, or the Department of Defense or the Department of State. Uh, this issue won't go to go away. There will probably be a lot of pressure to change it. The U.S. might very well change it, although we don't know what the framework will be if the U.S. does, in fact, uh, say it's no longer strategic ambiguity. It's now something else. What that something else will be, we don't know. Uh, and how China will react, we don't know, which brings us to uh, the key point once again, that no matter what the U.S. does with regard to this issue, that Taiwan needs to make clear its own position. Does Taiwan want the U.S. to do this, to make a change to strategic ambiguity, to strategic clarity? And if so, uh, Taiwan does need to be prepared as well for how China might react to this, which is also a mystery. Uh, Professor Huang. Okay, I wanted to brought two uh, level discussion to the same issues. The first discussion is, uh, what's the meaning about a strategic ambiguity or clarity? I mean, uh, in our idea for Taiwanese, it's basically whether U.S. would uh, definitely come to Taiwan to help in terms of defending Taiwan once China attacked Taiwan. Um, so this is some kind of military uh, promises of obligation. Do U.S. want to try to make it very clear that the U.S. definitely would do that? Or it depends, right? So that's for Taiwanese concern. But for U.S. policy uh, making, uh, I mean, the, the, the point of view, policymakers' point of view is that um, do U.S. needs to make that obligation, and especially when the situation really comes that um, they are facing the war and uh, there will be a political cost domestically. So sometimes uh, it's a very, very heavy cost for the politicians to bear. They would rather not make it that clear, but... Uh, so what my, my point is that in, in, in old time, that there is a balance uh, situation where when U.S. not stating this obligation clearly, but insinuating that they were doing so, but not say definitely, then Taiwan will, will, will kind of ponder over whether they will go that far. Because if they got U.S. 100% promises, then they might go very far to pursue you know, Taiwan independence. And in that way, we're making the situation, you know, unnecessarily worse because all in a sudden, you, the situation would gone very, very hostile with China, right? So that is the, the, the first level of discussion. But I want to bring your attention to the second level of attention, which is that what China is thinking or what China is doing. Um, my take is China is uh, kind of um, sick and tired to guessing that. And China trying to develop certain military capability that even U.S. make that promise, that, that, that promise won't become true because within the very short period of window that the China would, would achieve military success. So what China actually doing is developing their military capability that can prevent even U.S. trying to deliver their promises. They won't be able to do so successfully. So that's what China wanted to develop unilateral capability can resolve Taiwan issue in a very short period of time. Uh, regarding that issue, there are a lot of different evaluations. So you will hear a lot of our legislators asking our you know, Ministry of Defense, uh, how long uh, does China take can, they can you know, the, 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 the occupy Taiwan? So the answer comes from several hours to, uh, I don't know, a month 
or uh, so that is really key questions because there, it takes time. It takes a lot of mobility, military mobility for U.S. to prepare in order to 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 to, to defend Taiwan when when China uh, launch full uh, all-out war against Taiwan or you know at least a very very serious uh, military you know the the the, the measures so. Okay, so that 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 point that two point of view, I think, is very important for us to ponder over. So the the second one actually preempt the first level discussion because no matter U.S. want to make it clear or keep it ambiguous, it doesn't matter. So that's what China's dominant strategy they are thinking. But but what's the best interest for for Taiwan? I think for the current uh, state, we still want to have more defense capability, right? So we, the more weapon we got. We still welcome, but it comes to a tipping point where the China believe that Taiwan go too far and demonstrate unnecessary, too hostile. You know the the intention trying to depart from Taiwan. So that is the risk we need to think about. So that's also our politician needs to think about. Uh, Ross, of course, talking of risks there. I mean, what do you see as being the key geopolitical risks in cross-strait relations that could test the political will of either Donald Trump for the next four years or Joe Biden for the next four years? It's a very difficult question to answer, Gavin. But I think we need to keep in mind that Taiwan is a democracy, just like the U.S. sort of kind of is. We'll see what happens with this election result and whether it's disputed. Uh, but the the will of the Taiwan people is an important uh, factor in addressing the, the issues you, you identified in your question. And uh, you say, well, what are the risks? It's, well, what does the people of Taiwan want? And, and if the people of Taiwan uh, really do want to change the constitution, uh, they want to change the country's name, they want to change the flag, uh, because the current name or flag or constitution don't reflect the realities of Taiwan in, in, in the 21st century, in 2020, 2021. You know, that that's up to the people of Taiwan, uh, but that might crash against what what China uh, will not accept, and then we're we're back to answering the questions about U.S. assistance or Taiwan's own defense preparedness. Uh, so when you you say what are the big risks? Uh, well, it's what do the people of Taiwan want, and what direction they want to go, what China might do in response to that, and then China's other general uh, activities, uh, whether it's the Diaoyutai, Senkaku Islands, South China Sea, and there was the developments just in the past few weeks where the Hong Kong air traffic control denied uh, uh, permission to a Taiwan aircraft to fly to Dongsha Island. So you know, the, the geostrategic environment is, is evolving. Um, and it's evolving in ways that increase the danger or the risk of military conflict. And yeah, it's fair to say most of this is generated from China. They're, they're not exactly the most peaceful neighbor uh, right now. Uh, and the, those factors will continue to evolve. They'll continue to be risks. They'll continue to do military exercises. The more military exercise China does, whether in the air or at sea, then the more Taiwan has to respond, the more we'll see a U.S. response. Again, that leads to a higher or greater risk of conflict. Accidents could happen. An accident uh, between two naval aircraft or uh, sorry, two, two naval ships, two warships or aircraft between China and Taiwan could very quickly escalate into a greater conflict. Uh, economic risks as well. Uh, you know, there's been speculation that China would terminate the ECFA and what would be the implications then for uh, trade between China and Taiwan. 
this discussion uh, in the past few hours because there was a threat from uh, Hu Xijin, who I'm sure is is uh, well-known here in Taiwan. He's become increasingly well-known around the world as a because of his tweets and other commentary from the Global Times, uh, threatening a, a blockade of Taiwan. Uh, so uh, the, the risks are, are lengthy as far as the number of items that are on the list, and they're probably going to evolve, as I said, to be scarier. And, and uh, I know I'm repeating a point I made earlier, but once again, it shows how important it is that the Taiwan government, the people of Taiwan, industry in Taiwan have response measures for the various uh, actions that China might take. And Albert. Okay, I, I kind of add up to more notions, uh, or, or maybe my observation is that <clears throat> I think Donald Trump, he really has a contribution in a sense to, to detect the real capability of China. Um, there are two notions to, to this. First of all, Chinese communists they do have a culture of respecting the strong. I mean, they do not sympathize with people who are weak or countries who are weak. I mean, if you look back into the uh, factional fights, the history of that between communist China and also KMT, you will know that you know, Chinese communists they'll never sympathize with, with the weak. And we have learned this in Taiwan for so many years that only those... Taiwanese people or politicians or scholars who are submissive to them would be bullied by them. If you stand up against China, and China will value, value you even more, which is very ironical to me, but that's true. If the logic is right, is on the right track, then I would say Donald Trump's uh, kind of tough uh, style is really functioning in a sense to deter China from becoming even more stronger. And uh, we can see, especially when it comes to the cross-strait relations, whenever Donald Trump says something strong against China, and uh, he will say that, you know, uh, you know, he once received an interview uh, from Fox News, or maybe, maybe not, uh, there's a program. He talked about, I mean, he was forced to answer the question that, you know, China will know what I'm going to do if, if, if they do something, right? I mean, that was a news clip out there a while ago. And I know he was forced to, to answer the question, but, you know, whenever Donald Trump says something like that, the Chinese government, governments, if you observe it closely, they don't respond, it, uh, respond to it very strong. I mean, they always kind of soft their tongue. And there's a pattern. If you do statistics, you will find there's a pattern out there. So that really kind of addressed my concern that if Joe Biden wins the next president, if you come back to if he comes back to the multilateral relations, or kind of force or let the China to play by by game, to kind of you know force China to come back to the interna international community, I wonder how much that's gonna work, because it it was the case already, and you know. But China never ceased to expand. The rising power, the, the, the all kinds of uh, uh, you know, rising behaviors on, on the China side is continuing. So I think Donald Trump, one of his uh, contributions is that he, he really pushed China to the corner and, and see how much China can, can do. And in fact, because of the past four years, I sort of see the loophole or the weakness of the Chinese governments. 
First of all, whoever is in the uh, you know the president in the position of the president of China, whoever is in that position, he has to deal with his own faction first before Taiwan, and that can save us a lot of space and time. So, personally, if Biden wins, maybe. Russ, you know many important influential people. I know you're from a Republican, but maybe you happen to know somebody from Democrats. You can tell them to continue to pick up Trump's legacy because that's not only help Taiwan, but also help Taiwan as a democracy and helps China to be a responsible stakeholder. Okay, so that, that's going to be helpful to many other countries, including Japan and Korea, and in, even the United States. Professor Huang, should, should we pick up Trump's legacy or move on to a Biden legacy of the future? Um, this is a really big question. Uh, I think there at least one, um, Trump, not necessarily policy, but the influence that uh, if Biden wins, should pick up. I mean, well, it's, it's like related to geopolitical uh, situation changing. If you actually look the West Pacific, Asia Pacific rim, from Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia. If you actually look all, you know, the popular opinion pool inside all those countries nowadays, originally there will be some kind of soft uh, against or very pro-China, like Malaysia, like in Indonesia. They are quite friendly to, to China. But recently, in recent two years, there are, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, alerting signs that in these countries that people also aware that U.S.-China competitions. So, I mean, strategically speaking, I think even Biden get elected, he'll definitely re-engage in, in Asia, and uh, he, he's going to hold the line in the um, Asia-Pacific ring. But there's a problem, because when the rising power like China, they are trying to uh, demonstrate they are going to surpassing the, 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 the dominant power. There, a lot of people would suspect there will be a test, strategic military tests uh, in these regions because there will be, uh, you know, very limited, but uh, somehow to show which one uh, really is the boss, at least in this region. So a lot of strategists, they are talking about the most likely spot that that kind of conflict can be happen which is that East China Sea, Taiwan, as well as South China Sea. Because in all those waterfronts, China claims sovereignty, and China domestically actually can have a lot of legitimacy in, launch, in launching that kind of uh, mil limited military conflict, because for them, they only need limited conflict to demonstrate whether China has a say, or at least on the top over the US. So that, that, and that was signal very uh, influential, uh, you know, information to whole international, international community. And, and, then, and then what we should expect? Uh, what we should expect is that, that sh I mean, our best hope is that that won't happen in Taiwan because any limited conflict happen in Taiwan, that would be major conflict for Taiwanese, right? So that, that would be very dangerous. But what if it happened in, for example, like East China Sea, and what if it happened in South China Sea? So though, then it all depends on which country would be, you know, would be targeted, would be influenced. If it, in East China Sea, the, the scale won't be too large. It would be just like an encounter of a U.S. ship and China naval ship and also Japan, some kind of very limited, very mild. 
but what's the you know the the, the scenario would be a little bit more um, how should I put a uh, 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 severe which is that in South China Sea because there's a open-ended waterfront have the multiple countries involved and some very friendly to China, some not, some is changing, always flip-flopping, like the Philippines. Philippines flip-flopping a lot. And then, um, and then also involving with the Vietnam. So that would be very, very complicated issue if happening in South China Sea. But uh, all those uh, speculation is all about there will be a structural changes in, from strategic point of view that in the Asia-Pacific ring. And that is the most likely uh, in the future if, if U.S.-China uh, composition escalate and uh, become very, very intense, that would be a hot spot for, for, for us to expect. So, so we, we should concern about it because that's just in our, 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 our neighboring areas. Staying with our neighboring areas. Finally, Ross, under the Obama administration, we have the, the pivot to Asia, which included Taiwan. And under Donald Trump, we have the Indo-Pacific strategy. Do you see Biden, if he wins, coming up with yet another one of these policies and inviting Taiwan to participate? Oh, Obama administration, they didn't just have the, the pivot. They had the rebalance. So uh, the, I start to call it the repivitalance or, or some, some combination of, of the two. Uh, but... Uh, looking back, or even at the time, it, it was clear that it was more slogan than actual substance. Of course, they'll, they'll cite a few things, so we, we try to negotiate the TPP. Uh, but as we've been talking about uh, the, during this forum, that there was a number of actions China took during the eight years of the Obama administration for, for which there wasn't sufficient response from the U.S. And how could you claim with a serious... Uh, argument that there really was a, a, a pivot or, or rebalance when uh, China's strength, its economic strength, its military strength grew so much during those eight years, often uh, to the detriment of not just the United States, but countries that are close to the United States, whether Japan, Taiwan, or, or others. Uh, but if, if Biden wins the election, you, you could be assured they will not continue the same slogans uh, for their foreign policy goals, uh, whether it's in, in this part of the world or other parts of the world, such as uh, Europe, South America, the Middle East. Uh, so they, it's, it's just part of governing. A, a new administration will have a bunch, of, a bunch of slogans for some of its foreign policy goals. But you know, uh, uh, I'll share a story, Gavin. A, a mentor of mine who once worked in, in, in government in the U.S. Uh, decades ago said, when we wanted to have a policy, we didn't come up with a slogan. We just did it. Uh, but it, it seems that uh, the trend nowadays is to have a slogan. And uh, that, that's what's going to happen. You know, Biden will have a slogan uh, and uh, everyone will come along just because they want to be friendly with the U.S., whether it's Taiwan or other countries. Uh, they'll, they'll repeat the slogan as well. Uh, but what will be the elements of that? Uh, I, I mentioned the TPP a few minutes ago. Uh, there might be another attempt at, at some kind of multilateral agreement. Uh, Taiwan would probably be a participant in that if it is led by the United States. Uh, I, I think we should assume that the Biden administration will pursue climate change policies that are very similar to the Obama administration. Biden has made it very clear he'll return to the, the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, I would expect that the U.S. would cooperate uh, with Taiwan on various kinds of initiatives, whether bilateral or multilateral. And uh, you know, the, the 
Well, what's China going to say? They're, they're, they're a big polluter, even if they're, they are members of, of several of these multilateral agreements. But uh, China's not, not going to have much of an uh, ability to persuade the U.S. not to cooperate with Taiwan on, on environmental protection issues, uh, which is an issue that has not been a priority for the Trump administration, but it would be for, for a Biden administration. Uh, Taiwan's continued absence from the, the World Health Organization probably creates a lot of opportunities, especially in the aftermath of, of this year's uh, virus events uh, for enhanced U.S.-Taiwan cooperation. The Trump administration's already announced some initiatives in this regard. Uh, so whoever wins the U.S. presidential election will probably also add envir- uh, health care to environmental issues and possibly trade issues, uh, whether multilateral or bilateral as well. So uh, as painful it might, as it might be for Trump supporters, uh, there will be some cooperation with Taiwan if Biden wins, and it will continue uh, if Trump wins. But uh, there will certainly be some differences as well, and that might be more in the, the national defense military space. And sadly, that's where we have to leave today's roundtable. And I'd like you to thank our guests on the panel this evening, Albert Cho. Dr. Huang Minhua at the end over there. And Ross Feingold. You've been listening to a Taiwan This Week US Election Roundtable special, which was recorded live at the National Taiwan University's GIS Convention Centre. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.